0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world, and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello. I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I for one know that they are a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian Mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Hope you're doing well today. I uh, Thank you so much for dropping by. And I apologize once again for not being directly on schedule. Me and the lovely and gracious Mrs. Bentley got into a little bit of a project that took me a little longer to finish than it used to do. I'm uh, not quite a surprise as surprised I used to be. But uh, anyway, thank you so much for dropping by. Now, whether we like it or not, the fact that our country treated people different because of the color of the skin is an undeniable fact in our history i myself am old enough to where i saw some of it firsthand and i am also uniquely of european african and cherokee descent which makes me even more irritated at the whole thing one-third of me at one point in time of our history tried to kill off the other two-thirds but i've said before that my good friend the late reverend barnes told me the last time that i saw him a few years ago that he was not african-american he was american he'd never been to africa and he didn't care to go but if his skin color had to be brought into the conversation he'd rather be called black or a man of color so it's for that reason that i use the term black instead of any of the designer terms they've come out with today which are when speaking about people of color now, the official story is that on the evening of August the 21st and going into the 22nd of 1831, the most deadly slave revolt in the history of the United States was launched by people of color who were being held as slaves. And over the course of a single day in Southampton County, Virginia, the rebels killed 55 white men, women, and children as they made their way toward Jerusalem, which is now called Courtland. Less than twenty four hours after it started, the rebels encountered organized resistance and were defeated in battle following and following that still set back, the rebels reassembled their forces, and the next day a series of follow up defeats led to the end of the revolt. Now white people quickly and brutally reasserted their control over Southampton County by walking around killing black people without any reservation whatsoever and no trials of any kind. Not that they seemed to be in any hurry to do so, but a few days after the result, the white leaders of Southampton were sure that they'd put the quietus on the revolt and work to limit the extracurricular killing of black people, instead of allowing that to continue while well, white leaders made sure that the remaining suspected rebels were tried. so. Oh, That also meant that the white enslavers would receive compensation from the state for the condemned slaves, the, you know, people who are considered their property. And I don't know how much more twisted it could get, but... So just sit on back there and grab a cold drink or something, and let me tell you the whole ugly truth of the matter is it really happened. awful oppressive system of slavery became the official reason for the revolt, as we know you know the winners get to write history a man named Nat Turner, who was the man blamed for leading it, described his own motivation for the revolt in more religious terms there wasn't a whole lot known about Nat Turner other than he was born into slavery in Southampton Virginia on a plantation in Southampton Virginia in October 2nd 1800 he could read and write which, uh, from a very young age, which is an unusual thing for an enslaved person of that time and place. Now, he also owned and used his own Bible. He had a family, including a grandfather who he, or a grandmother who he loved dearly, and he had a father who'd escaped, escaped slavery and was never seen again. He also had a wife and son who lived in a nearby farm. Now, Nat was deeply religious, devoted to his time and to fasting and prayer and preaching the word to anybody that listened. In fact, he was known as Reverend Nat. He had revelations where the spirit that had spoke to the prophets in the days of old spoke to him when he was in his 20s. Nat ran away from his overseer, and he was gone for a whole month before he came back. He said that the spirit urged him to come back, saying that now it's not the time, so he obeyed. I can't imagine the punishment that the plantation owners dreamed up to put him through. Most of the time, they would whip and beat somebody near to death for doing anything but what they were told to do. Sorry, folks, but truth is truth, no matter how ugly it is. And In the late 1820s, Reverend Nat's visions, which up to that point had been non-political and non-violent, became very political. And as we all know, that usually comes with violence because the world is and always has been ruled by the aggressive use of force, whether we like it or not. One way or another, on May 12, 1828, the spirit he'd been listening to appeared and told Nat that it was time was fast approaching for when the first would be last and the last should be first. And he also told him that there would be a sign coming. Now, Nat's religious motivations might not have been the only thing that led him to cook up the whole plan. At the time, Nat lived on the farm of his enslaver, Joseph Travis, while Nat's son lived on a neighboring farm belonging to Petey Reese. Now, in February of 1831, Mr. Reese's son, John W., signed a blank banknote that put Nat's son up as collateral for a debt that the young Mr. Reese had trouble paying. And that meant that if the young Mr. Reese couldn't pay the debt, Nat's son could be taken and sold off to pay it, and there would be a real good chance in that case that Nat would never see his son again if that happened. Now, if being held a slave wasn't already enough reason to take up arms and fight for freedom, Nat had another good one, and it looked to him like God was telling him to get on with it. I, for one, can certainly understand enough being enough. Now, Nat shared his idea of putting together a revolt with four other enslaved men named Henry, Hark, Nelson, and Sam, who he was close friends with. Now, none of the four of them let the cat out of the bag about the plan. In fact, all four decided to join up with Nat, knowing that uh, they'd probably cost them their lives. These men never had the chance to explain why they joined up with Nat, but... When I use my Appalachian powers of deduction, I can say with confidence that they'd probably had about enough of being treated the way they were being treated and reached a point where death just didn't scare them anymore. Heck, to them it might even be better than what they were going through day in and day out. Many whites at the time of the revolt dismissed Nat's followers as pawns who acted under the influence of their leader but it's actually unclear how many of them, uh, if any of them, were believers in natural religion. And the only person who was named as a religious follower was a white man named Etheldred Brantley, who had bat- Nat baptized. While Nat might have described the revolt in more religious terms, the others involved in it uh, did so under more political terms. When the man picked a date to start the revolt, They first picked the 4th of July, and I don't blame them. How better to send a message of freedom? As the men tried to turn Reverend Nat's inspiration into a working plan, they thought about the revolt in a little more of a strategically terms, and nothing was more important to them than making sure the plan went undetected. Nat and his men understood that other black folks had quite frequently tried other things like that, but because they confided in the wrong people, the news of the plan would always leak out. Now, based on that bit of information, the men decided to keep the revolt within a very small group. They didn't even stockpile weapons. They went along with Reverend Nat's idea to slay their enemy with their own weapons. Now, while this made them less dangerous at the beginning, it also lowered the chance that anything would be found out before they even got the plan off the ground. Reverend Nat would go out to the meeting place and begin to sing a certain song and that would be heard by the other men and that meant it was meeting time and they'd get together and work on their plan. Now keeping the whole thing small meant nobody would likely uncover anything but it also created a whole other problem for them. They had to figure out how to get the other enslaved people and free black folks who hadn't heard anything about the revolt to join up with them. Reverend Nat and his friends thought long and hard about that problem, and it didn't stop anything, though. That was until July 4th, 1831, the day that everybody agreed to start the revolt. Reverend Nat got sick. Part of the reason for that was because he had very little confidence that the plan would actually work because he hadn't yet seen the sign he'd been looking for. Finally, his sign appeared on August 13th, 1831 where across the whole east coast, the sun shrank down to a sliver and would turn green. Now, when I was a young feller, we had a solar eclipse visit the mountains where I lived. And if you ain't never seen one firsthand, let me tell you, it does raise the hairs on the back of your neck for a spell. That's when the men settled on the plan, and they hoped would lead enslaved people to be and the free blacks to rally behind them. They planned a sudden strike, killing whites, including women and children. It didn't matter. Hearing about their power and success, other enslaved people and free blacks would surely join their fight. When one man they were recruiting into the plan said that there was just wasn't enough men to even think about starting a revolt, one of the original men assured him that as they went about killing the white people, the black folks would join in with them at that time in Southampton, black people, even though most were kept as slaves, greatly outnumbered white people, so the plan wasn't crazy and could work. This was just a first stage of the plan, though. Once they had formed and equipped a sufficient fighting force, the indiscriminate killings of whites would end, and they revolt would uh, then continue using more conventional methods of warfare. The plan was most certainly a long shot at best, but the five men were willing to stake their lives on it. I guess a long shot is better than no shot at all on Saturday evening, August twentieth, Reverend Nat, Henry, and Hark made plans for a big dinner the next day for the men who had joined up with them When they got together the next day. The original five had added two more after the dinner and a trip to joseph travis's Cedar press cider press. I'm sorry, they were about ready to start and as ready as they was going to get to start fighting. And the revolt started on Sunday night, August 21st, 1831 at Joseph Travis's farm. During the night, the men caught the occupants of the farm completely by surprise and sleeping. And white people were in no position to escape or fight back. At the same time, while the men were in their own neighborhood, they freed the enslaved people that they knew that and tried to recruit them to take up arms and join them. At the Travis home, they recruited Austin, who, despite living on the same small farm as Reverend Nat, hadn't even had an inkling of an idea about the plan. At the same time, other enslaved people, even the good friends of the original men, were a little bit hesitant to join the revolt. Hark's brother-in-law, Jack, agreed and finally joined after a good bit of convincing. Others, including a free back black man named Emery Evans, who lived in the Celestial Francis farm, refused to join altogether. Over the course of the night, the rebels attacked three households, killing eight white people, and including a sleeping baby at the Travis' house that they attacked and killed with knives, hatchets, and fence posts. As sunrise approached on the morning of August 22nd, the men, who by then numbered about 70 or so, charged their attack, or changed their attack method. During the night they had moved quietly and attacked in silence. Now during the day they moved swiftly. They found that carrying muskets and any kind of guns was cumbersome and most didn't take them with them. And at Elizabeth Turner's place Austin shot Hartwell Peebles which was the first time that any of the men used a gun at all to kill anybody. During the morning the men separated into two squads. One went on horseback, one traveled by foot. This allowed the group on horseback to launch more and faster strikes. These attacks were successful in terms of killing white people, and at Catherine Whitehead's plantation, the men killed all but one of the whites, and that included Margaret Whitehead, who was the only person Reverend Nat killed. But the men continued to struggle to win supporters among slave people. They just weren't ready for anything on that level yet. Among the Whitehead's 27 enslaved people, the rebels found that most of them, they at best, got one recruit out of it, and uh, several of Catherine Whitehead's enslaved people stopped them from killing Harriet Whitehead. At Newett Harrison's even larger plantation, the rebels failed to gain a single recruit. By late morning, it was clear that the rebels would, wouldn't inspire a mass movement, as they had hoped. Nevertheless, at about forty enslaved people, the rebel army was still a dangerous force. Stick around, folks. Uh, this canon does get worse. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. morning, the challenge of recruiting was compounded by a new problem for the rebels. News about the revolt had spread, making it harder for the rebels to find white victims. Most white people who had heard of the revolt immediately fled to the woods, eluding the rebel army altogether. Now, others tried to create defensible positions. At Levi Waller's Farm, the site of the local school, word arrived of the insurrection and Mr. Waller made a decision to gather the children together and defend them. This led to the most devastating raid of the revolt because the rebels showed up just after the children had all gathered together but before Mr. Waller could set up any kind of defense. Mr. Waller Mr. Waller's wife and ten children died during the assault. By midday when the rebels left Rebecca Vaughn's house they didn't encounter any more white people. Arthur Vaughn was the last person killed by the rebel forces. By the afternoon of the 22nd <clears throat> in 1831, the whole dynamic of the revolt had changed in an important way. Reverend Natney's men remained on the offensive, heading toward Jerusalem, which is, like I said, now called Cortland, where they <clears throat> hoped to get a hold of some serious arms and ammunition, but they were being chased by several posses of white men who'd organized forces to suppress a revolt. At James Parker's farm, a group of whites led by Alexander P. Pete, who uh, had been chasing the rebels for a, you know along the road toward Jerusalem, wiped out a small group of rebels who were, who were at the gate standing guard, while the other rebels went to Parker's slave quarters to free the slaves and recruit members to fight with them. This white force then attacked the main rebel force at Parker's Farm. Mr. Pete and his men were driven off the field. The rebels went after the men, but the chase led the rebels right into an ambush set up by other white men who had heard the sounds of fighting nearby. Now Reverend Nat's men were turned back from the and had to run or back from the run toward Jerusalem. And following that defeat at Parker's Farm, the rebels spent the afternoon trying to regroup. By evening, the men that made their camp at Thomas Ridley's plantation and Reverend Knapp and about 40 sparsely armed men were all that was left. But the rebels were scared and edgy. That's what war does to people, folks. I've met many friends who have been in the middle of it and they all tell me that about that feeling of always being scared and on edge and it just don't ever seem to go away. It stays in the background of their lives and flares up on them with a certain smells, sounds, or even a taste can, can trigger it off. But when the scouts went out before dawn to look for potential attack, they didn't find anything. With all the rebels and <clears throat> now all ill at ease, The rebels who hadn't fled made their way to Samuel Blunt's plantation, which they believed, you know, Mr. Blunt had probably ran off too. But Mr. Blunt and five others had set up a defense. They opened fire on the rebels and they got separated during that fight. In the commotion following the encounter at Mr. Blunt's farm, Reverend Nat lost contact with the other rebels who broke up into smaller groups and were being chased by more white men. The largest revolt in u.s history well it was effectively over by midday on august 23rd a day and a half after it started word of the revolt had created fear amongst white people many of them had left their houses to gather what they at what they deemed to be safe places now i gotta wonder at this point if any of them thought that if they hadn't been holding people slave to start with none of this would have happened as the white families gathered uh, paramilitary units were organized to put down the revolt and in many cases got revenge. In the days after the revolt, white people from Southampton and beyond killed about three dozen black people without trial or any remorse at all in Southampton County. Now at Catherine Whitehead's farm, a white unit from Greensville County was about to kill an enslaved man named Hubbard. When Harriet Whitehead stopped the execution by explaining that Hubbard had actually saved her life. It's a wonder they didn't kill him anyway, simply because of the whole twisted thought process of the day. White people also tortured suspected black rebels, often putting their feet in the fire. They run down and tortured one suspect who nearly had his foot burnt plumb off before they found out that he was actually truly innocent. That's how brutal and evil the whole thing was. The pattern of brutality and killing in the days after the revolt was a serious threat to the black community both free and enslaved as well as the country's largest slave owners of course we got to consider them too poor slave owners losing all their property and all that's the way people thought back then after the revolt anybody could freely kill an enslaved person and escape any punishment by claiming that they thought that the enslaved person was a rebel To stop the killing of people at will. On August 28th, General Richard Epps, the leader of the state militia force in Southampton, finally issued an order calling for white people to abstain for the future or in the future from any acts of violence to the personal property, whatever for the cause or whatever the reason. Now, those who disobeyed this order would be subjected to the rigors of the Articles of War. For the love of Mike, folks. That's That meant that the killing of human beings uh, based on their skin colors, was considered property damage instead of murder. And the effort to stop extra legal killings was for the most part successful and meant that uh, thereafter most enslaved people who were suspected of supporting the rebels were tried in court instead of outright killed. The trials of the suspected enslaved rebels began on August 31st, 1831, The trials were held in courts of Oyer and Terminer, which meant that the suspects were being tried without jury before a panel of slave-holding judges. There just wasn't any end to it, folks. Each of the accused rebels had appointed defense attorneys, and the judges made an effort to ensure that the trials were not show trials. The court demanded properly drawn charges, It dismissed a case where the prosecutor hadn't properly drawn up his charges and required that the prosecutor present some credible evidence that the accused were guilty of any kind of a crime. In many of the cases, those formal requirements were not a problem for the prosecutor. Meriwether Brodnax, who was able to secure 30 convictions against accused enslaved people, and every one of the convictions led to a death sentence, although in 12 of these cases the court found some accentuating circumstances such as youth or lack of substantial involvement in the revolt or reluctance to join the rebels to recommend that Governor John Floyd commute their death sentences to sail from the state of Virginia. The Governor followed the recommendations of the court in every case where the court provided a unanimous recommendation although he tried but was unable to commute the sentence of a lady named Lucy the Woman, one woman convicted in the role of the revolt. In, <clears throat> in one case where the split court recommended commutation, Governor Floyd sided with the minority and allowed the execution to proceed. The judges also examined five free black people. Four were remanded until the next meeting of the Superior Court of Chancery, where the three would be acquitted, and one, Barry Newsom, was convicted and sentenced to death. Reverend Nat was still unaccounted for while the trials and executions were going on. He stayed on the lamb in the backwoods of the county and he was out there for nearly two months until a dog happened to stumble on his hideout and found some meat. The dog came back a few nights later and brought two black men with him who were out hunting with with the dog. When Nat came out to stand in front of him, he pleaded for him to keep his hiding place a secret. But they had been so terrorized by what had happened to the other rebels who were hanged right in front of everybody that they just ran away. Now, realizing that they were fixing to turn him in, Reverend Nat ran for it. When the manhunt was picked up near where the revolt began, Benjamin Phipps finally caught him. On October 30th, 1831, Reverend Nat Turner was brought to Jerusalem the next day where he was questioned by James Trevent and... James W. Parker, two of the most prominent political figures in Southampton County. The questioning lasted more than an hour and witnesses found him quite communicative and Nat's willingness to answer any questions created opportunity for one Thomas R. Gray, a young, near-to-well attorney who offered to publish Nat's confession. That's where I picture Saul Goodman looking for some get-rich-quick scheme coming in to talk to Nat. Now Nat agreed to So Mr. Gray met with Nat over a series of three days and took down his full confession. And uh, Mr. Trevant, in turn, read the draft of the confession at Nat's trial on November 5, 1831. So much for attorney-client privilege, I guess. Even outside the Southampton County, the revolt had important repercussions. White slave owners in nearby Virginia counties And North Carolina worried that the revolt plan went well beyond Southampton. This led to the retribution against black people who apparently held their mouth wrong. In Wilmington, North Carolina, the fear of slave insurrections led to panic amongst white people and brutal actions against black folks. Uh, Because of the revolt, Reminded white people about the dangers of enslaving large numbers of black people. About 2,000 Virginians petitioned the state legislature to to do something about slavery. I can only imagine what come out of that. Let's see. A committee charged with considering the petitions reported that it was inexpedient for the General Assembly to pass any laws that would end slavery in Virginia. Instead, the legislature passed a series of restrictions aimed to further suppress the black religion and limiting the rights of free blacks. Yeah, that's about what I thought. Reverend Nat Turner's revolt remains an important part of the cultural landscape of the United States. The abolitionist Tom, Thomas Wentworth Higgins wrote a history of the revolt that appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, the in the first months of the Civil War. In the 20th century, the historian Herbert Apthiger wrote about the revolt in a myriad of other instances of slave resistance as a way to combat the common perception that enslaved people were fine and dandy and even happy in the antebellum South, which was a common thought amongst white people across the South after the Civil War. His work on Southampton, Prepared the groundwork for the revisionist understanding of slavery as an oppressive system that enslaved people, and that enslaved people actually justly resisted. Amen. I say. When asked if he regretted what he had done, he responded, "Reverend Nat did that. Simply, that he always said was was not Christ crucified." Reverend Nat Turner, well. He was hanged on November 11, 1831 in the county seat of what is now called Cortland, Virginia. He was then beheaded as an example to other would-be rebels. After that, his body was dismembered and skinned, with his skin being used to make souvenir purses. What a... Mm, I tell you. It's almost beyond any belief that people in this country could have been that cruel to their fellow man. I know that I can't conceive it, as I know most of you can't, but it, it is another part of an unbelievable dark history of our country that is very real and very true. Folks, I hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that just plain had to be told. If you did, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe or follow us on to get notified of new episodes on whatever podcatcher you're listening on. Come on over to our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast, where we can talk about everything Appalachian or about anything else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend, and I will see you then.